Many of you have received this uh, book called the Spiritual Warfare Prayer Book. Uh, it was written by the Dodies uh, quite a few years ago from uh, Illinois, Mattoon, Illinois. Uh, everybody has a book. We, you have a book. You have it with you. You have one. Anybody been using the book? Okay. If you've been using the book at all, then you've probably come up against some things or some things have come up against you. Uh, which is the purpose of why we're teaching this series. If you want one of these prayer books, there's a box of them up here. Uh, the pastor said as long as you will use it, there's no charge. So if three or four months, five months, you stop using it, I guess you're going to owe for the book. But <coughs> but uh, we're going to refer to this from now on as the black book. That's what we've called it around this church for years. We've... Uh, been using the book for quite a few years, <coughs> and so it's not new to some of us. We're going to be talking about spiritual warfare uh, beginning tonight. It's going to be a three consecutive Thursday night series beginning tonight, and then two more Thursday nights following. Uh, what we're going to deal with tonight is not in the book, uh, but it's very important because before you ever start praying using this little black prayer book, there's some things that you need to know. Uh, and those of you that uh, have started using the book, uh, I'm sure this will help you as well. It should be noted that spiritual warfare is conducted through the conduit of prayer. You cannot be engaged in spiritual warfare without it being in the context of prayer. Prayer is the theater in which we engage the enemy in spiritual combat. When they talk about war and the geography of where wars are fought, they refer to that geography as the theater where the battle is being waged. So the subject of spiritual warfare and prayer are inseparable. They're not necessarily synonymous, but they are inseparable. Uh, if you do not presently have a consistent thriving, uh, powerful prayer life, I recommend that that's where you start, that you do not start with this. <clears throat> if you start with this before that, uh, you are going to uh, 
uh, run into some problems and you will not know how to deal with them. Jude chapter 1 and verse 20 says, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. How do we do that? Praying in the Holy Ghost. I know that you um, uh, can agree with me or will agree with me that uh, in uh, situations where there is pressure being uh, applied to you for whatever reason, uh, a season of prayer in the Holy Ghost makes everything better. doesn't always fix things, but it, it gives you the ability, the power to deal with it. It gives you the mentality of faith <clears throat> that you need. And so praying in the Holy Ghost is equivalent to an athlete that trains his or her body, building up their strength, their stamina, and improving on whatever skill is necessary for them to compete in their particular sport. A soldier goes through a similar arduous regimen, uh, and it affects them emotionally. I've heard I, I did not... Uh, go through Marine Basic. I went through Air Force Basic training. It was actually easier than than uh, football practice in high school. But uh, in Marines, they have to break a person down to form them into a Marine. And when an athlete trains, they're training to win. When a soldier trains, they're training to live, to survive when they are on a battlefield or when they are confronting the enemy. So spiritual warfare, praying, is strenuous. It affects the, the physical body as well as the spirit. Spiritual warfare praying is very taxing. And if you're going to pray uh, spiritual warfare prayer, you have to be ready for the blowback. You have to be ready for the enemy to retaliate because he always will. The enemy, the, the devil, demon spirits that we're going to be talking about, <coughs> excuse me, they're not polite at all. And uh, they will retaliate every time they have the opportunity. If you're going to pray from the prayer book, you, be, you need to be prepared for that. He's not just going to bow and thank you for talking to him, and then they're not just going to leave. They're going to retaliate. So that's one of the reasons, the primary reason, you have to have a strong, thriving prayer life because that will happen when you pray spiritual warfare prayer. And then you say, well, then why would we do that? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the Bible study tonight. But spiritual warfare prayer is not a game. It is not just a, a form of recreation. Spiritual warfare prayer uh, is, is not just a more interesting way to pray. Uh, praying in the Holy Ghost <coughs> is very important. But if you practice spiritual warfare prayer, and you don't know how to pray in the Holy Ghost, it's going to leave you ill-equipped and unprepared to deal with the potential uh, counterattack. So the rules of engagement in, in almost every war, every enemy does not necessarily play by the rules of engagement in spiritual warfare. Uh, there are rules of engagement. The enemy is limited in, his, in the scope of his power and what he can do. Uh, the story of Job is... Uh, it's very enlightening, illuminating. The enemy could just take Job so far. He could make him sick, couldn't kill him. And so there are limitations to what the enemy can do. But trust me, uh, it is a very, he is a very worthy and powerful adversary. And we should not take this lightly. We should not uh, 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 think that this is a, a little thing. 
this is a very important uh, aspect of prayer, and it must be entered into with great respect. So having equipped oneself with the whole armor of God, <clears throat> we're going to talk about the armor of God next week, uh, but we're going to defer to it here momentarily. But having put, putting on the armor of God, Paul gives the following advice in Ephesians chapter 6 and 18. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So he establishes here in his instructions to the Ephesian church that the connection between spiritual warfare and prayer is indelible. It is undeniable. Uh, he said that having put on the armor of God, you should pray always. He's not talking about 24 hours a day because no one is capable of doing that. We have obligations. We have things that we, we have to do, things that we uh, enjoy doing. Uh, but he's talking about to always pray. You must have a prayer life. You must have an altar in your life. Pray always with all prayer. We're going to, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about here tonight, and supplication for all saints, of course, and in the Spirit. The apostle here was making a very broad assumption. He was making the assumption that the people of God were already equipped and engaged in devotion and in prayer, that they were already adept and committed to prayer, to communion with God. When, when Jude wrote about building up yourselves, praying in the Holy Ghost, that was nothing new to the early church. It was something, uh, an admonishment that they were familiar with because they were accustomed to praying in the Holy Ghost. So Paul makes the assumption that he, he's talking to these people. He didn't say if you pray, but he assumes that the people of God prayed. His admonition here was not about prayer, but it was about wearing the armor of God. He didn't say, if you don't pray, don't put on the armor. He assumed everybody prayed. And so he didn't have to uh, write another chapter on if you do or if you don't. He made the assumption everybody prayed. Uh, I don't think that we can make that assumption today. Honestly, I'm sorry to say it. I don't think that we are are capable to make the assumption that every apostolic believer has a strong, healthy, thriving, powerful, anointed prayer life. It, it, I, would, I would hope that every apostolic man, woman, boy, and girl does, but you understand today that we cannot make that assumption. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes as well in a little bit different context. So before you can be taught how, to successfully engage demon spirits, you must first establish your place at the altar. <clears throat> that should be your highest priority after you leave here tonight if, if you do not have an altar in your life. So in all honesty, we can teach you a few things about spiritual warfare and about how to confront devils and so on, and we can leave it at that, but that would do you a grave disservice because it would leave many of you uh, ill-equipped would also be very unproductive. The object is not just to, to have three Bible studies on spiritual warfare. The object is to equip the saints, to edify the saints, so that we can be effective in the confrontations that we have 
with the principalities and powers of our city and those that are affecting even our own personal lives. So the weapons of our warfare, the Bible says, are mighty through God. But I've got news for you. It's probably not a shock to you, but if a samurai soldier came in here and handed me a samurai sword, it wouldn't do me much good. I'm not trained with a samurai sword. And I think that some people attempt to use some of the weapons of our warfare, and they find it cumbersome like David did with the armor of God that Saul put on him. And he said, look, I'd just rather use a sling and some stones because I know I'm good with that. So once again, we can talk about it. We can, we can issue some, uh, the armor and the, and the weapons and all the stuff. But if you're ill-equipped to use these things, then they're not going to do you very much good at all. <clears throat> so putting on the armor and waving a sword around, if you're not used to using a sword, doesn't make you a warrior. I can put on a baseball uniform. It doesn't make me a baseball player and so on. So what I'm trying to tell you is spiritual warfare is not a game. It's not Disneyland. Spiritual warfare is not just another cool way to pray and take up some time in your daily devotion. It is not just something to make prayer more interesting or more provocative or whatever adjectives we could come up with. But let's look at Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye loose or shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The most powerful and significant aspect of spiritual warfare is the authority to bind and loose. <clears throat> the authority, the exousia authority to bind and loose spirits. Now, we're loosing people, but we're binding spirits. You understand that? Verse 19, again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth, if you, can, <laughs> if you can find two people on the earth that will agree. I'm just reading that because it's rather comical because sometimes that is one of our biggest problems is agreeing. If two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It seems apparent to me uh, that Jesus is stating that our greatest power to bind and loose is exercised when we are united together in prayer. When we are together in prayer. When we are agreeing, we can all agree Jesus is great. We can all agree he is worthy of praise. Now, you, we say that, but yet in any given service, when we're exalting him, there are always people in this room that aren't. Now, how would you feel if you walked into a room and everybody clapped and applauded, but two or three people just sat there like this? you would gravitate to those that didn't clap and didn't applaud and didn't at least show some appreciation in, 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 instead of 100 people that did. And that's why I worship with my eyes closed. <clears throat> it really is. It really is. Uh, so there's no question that an individual believer, you as an individual, that you can personally 
and should personally engage your adversary and the adversaries that operate, the spiritual dominions that operate within our city, within our jurisdiction. You have the authority and power to personally uh, engage these things and to use that authority to bind uh, and to loose. However, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that our potential for success in regard to spiritual warfare is increased exponentially when we come together in prayer. As it turns out, spiritual warfare is a team sport. Forgive me for putting it that way. It's not sport, but it, it takes a team to be ultimately successful against the principalities and powers that rule and reign in, in our area and in America. Do you know that America is very quickly, if it's not already become, it is now the Sodom and Gomorrah of the world. Now, that ought to scare us a little bit. Other than the fact that uh, the angels went and took Lot and his family out before he reigned, so the coming of the Lord is going to get us out of here before he takes care of his business. But these spirits rule and they reign and they dominate and, and they're destroying people's lives. They're destroying families. And the only people in the world that can confront them successfully is the church of the living God. So the early church understood uh, this about prayer better than we do, uh, perhaps because the church was born in the fires of corporate prayer. <clears throat> I'm going to say it again. The church was born or came into existence in the fires of corporate prayer. And so since we purport that we are a Book of Acts church, we ought to look at prayer from a Book of Acts perspective. Don't you think we should do that? So let's do that. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. That is where Jesus ascended up into heaven. They saw him go into heaven. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. They didn't get to Jerusalem and say, okay, we'll see you Sunday. See you on the Sabbath. Hey, see you Tuesday. Hey, bye. Been nice walking with you. No, they did not separate. They did not go on their separate ways. When they got to Jerusalem, they all went. The Bible says about 120 of them went into an upper room, a room large enough to accommodate 120 people. It says where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas, the brother of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer with supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Now we know that prayer is not a New Testament phenomenon or practice. People did not just begin to pray under the banner of what is called the New Testament. It should be noted, however, that church was birthed in prayer. Prayer was not an anomaly. They didn't learn to pray after they were saved. They knew how to pray before the Holy Ghost fell. That the church was not only birthed in prayer, it was bathed in prayer. And it wasn't personal, private, closet prayer. It was corporate prayer. They're all in a room together praying and waiting and tearing 
for the promise of the Father. Luke 24, 49 says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. He didn't say tarry till you feel a little trickle. Uh, tarry until you feel goosebumps on the back of your neck. Pray until you feel a little. No, pray until you're endued. Pray until something happens and you walk out of there with power like you have never known or experienced before. Come on, Book of Acts Church. There was tongues and interpretation. I don't know what year it was. It was a year that we were at uh, because of the time service in Alexandria, Louisiana. But I still vividly remember a part of the message, and part of the message was, my people do not tarry in my presence. And it's stuck with me ever since. We don't know how to tarry. I mean, if I push a button on my iPad and it takes longer than three seconds, it irritates me. And it translates into our spiritual life. You sing two or three songs and God don't move. Come on, get the preacher up here and let's go home. We don't know how to tarry anymore. And it's a fact. Maybe uh, not all of our fault, again, because of the technological world that we live in. But we're just not very good at tarrying. Something happens when the people of God tarry. We went to uh, Chick-fil-A a couple weeks ago. And we were coming back from somewhere, didn't have Bree or little dog with us, so we got to go in and sit down and eat, which is a real treat. <laughs> and uh, we ordered our food and 15 minutes later, we haven't got a, generally by the time you sit down, they're bringing your food to the table. Waited 15 minutes, right? And I went up there to find it. You see, I didn't just get up and leave because they didn't bring my food. I waited and went and checked out till I, till we got our food. But we don't do that with God. If we don't get what we, what we're going for, we just say, well, I, we'll come back later tomorrow, next week or whatever. Think what would have happened if the disciples would have done that in Jerusalem. They tarried seven to ten days. I can't even comprehend that. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Excuse me, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I've read that scripture. It's probably not an exaggeration a thousand times, two thousand times. I don't even know. Preached on it hundreds of times. And yet the Holy Ghost spoke to me just a couple days ago about this. They were all filled. They were all filled. 120 people, 
Now, you know there were different personality types. There were some extroverts, some introverts. There were some loudmouths, some people you couldn't get two words out of them. There were all different kinds of eclectic personalities in the room. But when the Holy Ghost came, all of them received the Holy Ghost. See, we don't do that. Two or three or four or five, 10, 15 or 20 might get renewed in the Holy Ghost. But 30, 40, 50 are still saying, oh, God, I just can't break through. When they prayed, all received the Holy Ghost. That should be our goal. These people that can't seem to break through and, and speak in tongues after the first time receiving the Holy Ghost, the power of God should be in this place to the degree they can't do nothing but speak in tongues. See, I'm talking about spiritual warfare, and this is where we get the power to confront demons. So once the Holy Ghost was poured out, the 120 disciples in the, other, in the upper room, and then 3,000 souls are added to the church, they did not stop doing what brought about this unprecedented move of God. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So by the standards of the current and past practice of these disciples, the prayer they continued in was corporate prayer. That's what brought this. That's what caused this. That's what brought the power of God down. And they continued in corporate prayer. Now, we've got the doctrine down. We've got this fellowship thing down. We've got the eating down pat, but for some reason, we do not like to pray together. Are we a Book of Acts church, or aren't we? Because a Book of Acts church prays together. That's what got them here. That's what got 3,000 souls in the church on the first day. And they continued to do that. So why would they stop? Why would they not do the very thing that ushered in the power of God? Does not dismiss us from the mandate to uh, be committed to a personal, private, closet, devotion and prayer with Almighty God, that mandate remains strong. But since we spend most of our prayer time uh, in devotion, that's where we're going to do most of our spiritual warfare. However, I must impress upon you tonight that the true power and leverage of spiritual warfare is manifested and released when we pray together. I'm going to tell you something. There are Sundays when the greatest power of God, I feel, is in that room from 8 to 9, not in this room. I'm going to say it again. There are many Sundays I feel a greater power and anointing of God praying in that room between 8 and 9 than I feel in this sanctuary. We have had tongues interpretation in those prayer sessions. I don't remember the last time we had tongues interpretation in a worship service. What am I saying? Because God manifests himself among his people when they pray together. 
the angel of the Lord expressed to Gideon, he said, look, man, you are a mighty man of valor. Of course, Gideon was not convinced. But he wasn't just pulling Gideon's chain. He had a job for Gideon to do. And uh, he was to defeat the Midianites and the armies that accompanied the Midianites, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands perhaps of, of uh, soldiers. But he could not do that on his own. And so God led him through a process to where he ended up with 300 like-minded men. What did he start with? Was it 32,000? 32,000? Now, church, listen to the Holy Ghost tonight. He started with 32,000, but it wasn't until he got down to 300 that God says, okay. 300 like-minded men. You know the Navy SEALs train, and they, de they develop something among them in their, in their ranks that's called stasis. You ever hear of that? It's stasis. They train to the point where they all think the same thing at the same time. They're not just 15 or 20 men in a unit. They're one. They don't, they don't have to give orders. They don't have to say left, right. They, they train to the point that they reach a state of stasis where they are literally without God's spirit in one mind and one accord, and they operate that way. And that's why they are so successful. That's the way the early church operated. So why would the early church stop doing what had initiated this incredible outpouring of God's Spirit? Of course, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. And we see the same pattern throughout the, the uh, entire book of Acts. And I, I have examples. I, I'm not going to be able to use those because uh, my time is slipping by. And I don't want to abuse my privilege. So Acts 4, 23 and 24 being let go, they went to their own company. Uh, Peter and John, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. They lifted up their voice to God with one accord. One accord. They didn't just have a prayer meeting where half the people prayed and half some other people were on their phone and others talking and chatting and others mind. No, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Everybody prayed in the spirit. The Greek word is homothumos, and it means with one mind. In other words, they were in a, a state of stasis. It means with unanimous consent. In one accord are all together. The 31st verse says, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. Now what was the ultimate result of that prayer meeting that day? The ultimate result of that praying in one accord is found in verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Where do you think the commonality came from? It came from a prayer meeting. It came from corporate prayer. 
Peter didn't stand up on a podium and said, hey, let's all give our property and, and our belongings and sell our houses and let's all do that. No, it happened spontaneously as a sovereign act of God when they all prayed in one accord. They all walked out of the prayer meeting and had all things common. You want to know where unity comes from? It doesn't come from having a roundtable discussion. It doesn't come from praying for a spirit of cooperation. It comes when we are all in one mind and one spirit and the Holy Ghost moves on all of us at the same time in the same place. That's where true unity comes from. You see, we're too diverse and way too opinionated for us to gain unity any other way. The only time it stated that the church was in one mind and one accord was when the people of God were in prayer. Another example is in Acts chapter 12 where Peter was in prison. Prayer was made without ceasing to God. They were praying all over the city probably. And it says, uh, when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary. That's Peter after he got out of jail. House of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. What were they praying? They were engaged in spiritual warfare. They didn't send ambassadors to Herod, appealing for Herod's mercy, because Herod was a man. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. If you want to get Peter out, we got to pray. We're not going to deal with the Sanhedrin or anybody else. We, we need Peter out. We're going to take uh, our, our petition to the throne of God, and we're going to bind the prince and power of the air, and Peter will be free. It won't be because Herod desired to set him free. It was because we bound the prince of this city. And so, of course, an angel came, and, and uh, Peter was sleeping. I always thought it was funny. Everybody else is praying. Peter's the one in jail. He had so much faith. He was asleep between four quaternions of soldiers. Herod assigned 16, 16 soldiers to protect and guard one man, and they couldn't even do it. And an angel came. Why? Because there were people praying together. Praise God. Everybody say prayer. The power of combined faith and the agreement that ensues is first seen in the Old Testament. Of course, we've seen many th times in the Old Testament, uh, Gideon and his 300 men are just an example. There are many examples of which David and his 600 men, wow, talk about being together. But it starts in Leviticus chapter 26 and 8 where it says, and five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred shall put 10,000 to flight. And your enemy shall fall before you by the sword. Has anybody here ever done the math? I'm not a mathematician by any stretch of the math. I don't even know how to do stuff on a calculator. You know, all them, the uh, calculators, you can do roots and all this. I can't, I don't know how to do that. I don't even know what it is. Anybody here done the math concerning these scriptures? Or are you just looking at me to figure it out for you? Okay, all right. If we extrapolate from the formula of five chasing a hundred, 
right, then that should mean that 100 should be able to chase 2,000, right? But that's using our math. That's using the math that, that I was taught in school. But that's not God's math, and that's pretty good odds. But that's our math. God's math is completely different. Therefore, according to his math, 100 prayer warriors are able to put 10,000 to flight. Say, why should I pray? Because you have power. Why should I enter into to spiritual warfare? Because you have authority. You can move things that no one else can move. You can lose people that are bound by drugs, been through detox 20 times. It didn't work. Alcoholics, it couldn't get off the juice. But you can bind spirits of addiction. You have the power to do that. We can move things, church, if we will pray together. Luke 10, 17, the 70 returned again with joy, saying, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. So the focus of this short series is on spiritual warfare. But I want to stress that warfare praying should only be a part of our experience. Um, you have to be careful when you begin uh, warfare prayer that it's not consume your prayer time causing you to abandon other vital and important aspects of prayer. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Verse 8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So like the 70 that returned from their assigned mission rejoicing, the devils were subject unto them through the name of Jesus Christ. It's very easy to get caught up in that. It's very easy to get swept up in, in the black book and abandon the other aspects of prayer that we have been talking about here because Spiritual warfare prayer has a very specific inertia to it. It is, uh, there's an excitement that exists, uh, that comes upon us when we begin to confront entities that we know are far above us in power and strength, and yet we're shielded by God and we have authority to command them. So just as an uh, adrenaline and serotonin is released in a warrior, they, they say that one of the reasons that firemen and police officers generally do not live a long time is because every time they go to a call, there's adrenaline released, and it, it breaks down the heart. Every time the siren and the firemen are going to whatever they're going to, adrenaline is being released in their body, and it, it, uh, it, it's not good for the heart. So just like a soldier experiences the adrenaline, serotonin, when they're going into battle and they need that so they can, they can override their fears and the possibilities of what happened to them might happen to them on the battlefield. There's a release of God's anointing when you begin to pray spiritual warfare, and you will feel it. It's very demonstrable. There's a high level of excitement knowing that from your prayer closet you can command devils and demons, and they must obey you. Don't be afraid. I've heard some, some, some been talking about, been hearing sounds and, and things been happening in your house. Don't be afraid of that. 
you know, the devil used, years ago, Sister Bruce and I experienced that. And, oh, my gosh, the devil's here. You finally figure out, is that all you've got? Is that it? And so you have to understand the power and authority that God has given you. So it's exciting that we can speak to invisible spiritual entities that have been in the earth for thousands of years and they must obey our command. That's exciting. The fact that we can address principalities and powers that are responsible for destroying entire nations and they must yield to our authority through the name of Jesus Christ. Tell me that is not intoxicating. But the problem is that we have to be careful that our prayer life does not get out of balance. This is the same admonition that I give to intercessors who tend to become so imbalanced that they're unable to experience the joy of the Lord. can all be intercession. So we must not abandon or ignore other aspects of prayer, such as communion with God. You know, prayer is a two-way conversation. You say, I don't know how to pray. I, can't, I don't know what to say. Well, you're not supposed to be doing all of the talking. I'm going to be honest with you. There's sometimes a large part of my prayer is taking notes. I'm just listening. God's talking, and I'm writing stuff down. It's supposed to be a two-way conversation. It's communion with God. Then there's praise, there's worship. And one of the most important aspects of prayer that I think is overlooked is intimacy with God. It's not, it's not a 100-yard dash. Of course, there's petition, supplication, intercession. The priority of prayer is Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Then there's, of course, Luke 11, 9 and 10. Ask, seek, and knock. Everyone that asketh, receiveth. Everyone that seeketh, findeth. Everyone that knocketh, it shall be opened unto you. But the thing is, we rarely ever get to the seek, seeking part of prayer. Seeking is the assumption that you haven't found what you're looking for yet. See, that's the tearing part. I mean, and to get to knocking, that's, that is a, like a fourth dimension. But we ask, knock, and, and we seek, and those are important aspects of prayer. Notwithstanding, there's, of course, spiritual warfare. Isaiah 55, 6, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Listen, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. God may be here or there with you in a particular dynamic, but it's not what you want to, ex to experience. Seek for a deeper experience. The deep calleth unto the deep. At the noise of thy water spouts, all thy billows have passed over me. I have went on spiritual adventures because there was just something in God I wanted, and it was beyond the normal. And I began seeking after it until I reached it. Start seeking after God. Say, God, I feel you. I talk in tongues. I feel your power, your presence. But I want something more. 
and then seek God for that. The old model of prayer years ago, I remember uh, uh, a gentleman was at Gateway College, pastor, in the, in the chapel there. Uh, name was uh, Marvin Hicks, I think it was. Little short guy, walk, walking stick of dynamite. Man, I was, I was just this young guy early in my calling to preach, and, and I sit there mesmerized. Little Marvin Hicks preaching. He preached in the chapel there about one hour of prayer. And it, would be, it was the standard in the apostolic movement to pray an hour a day, which may seem literally impossible to some of us in this room. But I've come to the conclusion with all the things that we're confronting in this world, an hour a day is not enough. Give an example. This morning in prayer, I would, I would be intimate with God. I happened to look up in 45 minutes and went by. I couldn't even believe it. Just being intimate with God. Hadn't started petitioning yet or asking for anything yet or interceding for our prodigals yet. We're living in a broken world. We're the only thing holding the Antichrist back. Matthew 26, 40, this is where the one hour came from, I think, initially. Jesus came and finding his disciples asleep, said to Peter, what could you not watch with me one hour? But I think that, and I know with schedules and working and everything, look, I get that. It's a, it's a good goal to strive for and to maintain that kind of a discipline. We have the example of prayer. I don't have time to go into it. We're already over time, and I'm not even getting to some of the latter stuff I want to talk to you about. The Lord's Prayer, which is not something that we should recite necessarily. If you want to, it's okay, but it's really an uh, outline of prayer, right? Just an outline, basically. Uh, but you'll notice when Jesus, they ask him, the Lord teaches to pray, he gives the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. He didn't mention spiritual warfare in that, did he? Well, because people didn't have the Holy Ghost yet. And other than the 12 apostles, they really weren't prepared to confront demon spirits. That would come later. But why should we enter into warfare prayer? Why should we subject ourselves to the potential retaliation that could come from demon spirits? Terry Pratchett said, light thinks it travels faster than anything, but it is wrong. No matter how fast light travels, it finds that darkness has always got there first and is waiting for it. There are many reasons why it is important, why it is imperative and necessary, I believe, that we unite in warfare prayer. We're going to share some of them in the last few minutes that I have tonight. The headline on one internet news site says, and I knew this before I began researching this, but it says, Donald Trump's presidency has spawned a new generation of witches. Magic has long been a form of protest, but resistance through sorcery has burst into the mainstream consciousness only twice in recent memory during the 1960s and now. On a typical Wednesday, by the light of the waning moon, Kate Doucette joins thousands of strangers on the Internet in casting a spell to bind Donald Trump. 
to set as a member of a group called the Resistance Witches. They're also known as the Magic Resistance. The Resistance Witches is comprised of a 13,000 strong umbrella group of neo-pagans, Wiccans, solo practitioners, who self-identify as hedge witches, long-time magical practitioners in various traditions and other committed metaphysical activists. Why do we need to be combating and confronting and pushing this back? Because if we don't, they're going to destroy the very moral core of America. They come together each month, and they have done so since Trump's inauguration with one goal, to cast a spell to perform a quasi-religious ritual designed to bind the president. This particular spell is a variant of a traditional binding spell found in many contemporary neo-pagan and other occult practices. It involves channeling satanic energy and releasing it to hinder and bind and to limit our president, even to destroy him. I'm sure this is just one uh, group. There are probably many groups who are casting spells and performing rituals and incantations that are directed at Donald Trump and his family. Personally, I cover him with the blood and have been doing so long before I learned of these particular attempts to destroy him and his family. On one site, I saw a voodoo doll of Donald Trump with pins and needles sticking in him. If you think that's just a bunch of baloney, you are wrong. These powers exist. They are real. And we need to be aware of them. I believe the closer we get to the end of this age, uh, the more bolder these uh, demon spirits and principalities will become. Uh, if you've ever read the book Paradigm, I listened to the book. I've now started reading the actual book today. It talks about when a culture literally disintegrates, and that's what's happening to our culture. It is literally disintegrating before our very eyes, and we're the only people that can stop it. We can stop it. We can, we can at least have an effect upon it. I don't have time to tell you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, we do prayer walks in downtown Fort Myers. Before we built this building, we had a prayer walk in the downtown area of Fort Myers every Saturday. Every Saturday, a group from our church was walking the streets. When there were homeless everywhere, there were needles everywhere. When the city was in disrepair, the buildings were crumbling and falling down. We walked the streets of our city. Go down there now, and it, it has completely been renovated. But there is uh, a gay bar or nightclub now that has opened up, and the other businesses all put out uh, uh, rainbow flags in support of this gay bar. It has to stop. It has to stop. We don't carry placards, and we're not going to carry signs and picking in front of the restaurant, but you can be sure every day I am pleading the blood. I'm binding that spirit. I'm rebuking that spirit. I'm commanding it out of our city. I do not want us to become another Los Angeles or San Francisco or Key West. And church, we have got to stop it in prayer. There was an article in Sunday, February 2nd edition of the news press entitled Dark Waters. Anybody here read that article? 
My goodness. It's a story about the local practice of Santeria, witchcraft, the occult, and Afro-Cuban spiritual traditions right here in good old Lee County. What has drawn attention to this widespread practice of spiritism is after their rituals and their sacrifices to the devil, they are discarding headless chicken carcasses. And alligators and predators are being drawn to these carcasses and now are threatening neighborhoods where these things are discarded. There's a large community of people right here in Lee County who practice devil worship. I learned years ago when we first got in church, I learned the hard way. You don't talk much about the devil because you attract him to you. And I had a girl I, I met uh, on my route when I drove a truck that uh, used to be in, in, a, in a coven. She told me that you can't talk much about the devil. She said, I'm not going to talk about it because he will be drawn to me and I don't want that. Now, we're not afraid of that because we have power and authority. I'm not afraid to talk about him. But this stuff is going on and we cannot ignore it. If we do, it will be to the peril of our children and to a multitude of people that could have been saved in our city. Musicians, would you join me on the platform? We can bind these spirits. We can and we must. But we do it together. You can all go home. We can all do it in our separate prayer closets. It will have an effect. But when we come together, we exert a power and influence in the darkness that they will not be able to ignore. In the Old Testament, demon spirits, for the most part, operated under the cloak of darkness. I've always uh, wondered, for a long time I wondered, how is it that as soon as you get to the Gospels, everybody's devil-possessed. How did they know these? How did they know they were demon-possessed? How did they know they weren't just retarded or lunatic or mentally ill or something? How did they know? They brought, bring your children to Jesus. Oh, my son's demon-possessed. Cast the devil out. How did they know he was demon-possessed? They have a meter, a thermometer or something? How did they know? And yet we don't read anything in the Old Testament. You ever notice that? It's not there. It's virtually not there until you get to the Gospels. Now, we see Satan in the garden, but after that, he kind of disappears. And so, didn't devils possess people in the Old Testament? Of course they did. Of course they did. What do you think happened to Israel when they began to worship Baal and Ashtaroth and Diana and Molech? They became demon-possessed in their worship of these idols, which were actually devils being concealed. Luke chapter 1, 78 and 79, you can stand with me. It says, Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet under the way of peace. What happened was Jesus turned the light on. And once the light was turned on, he exposed that which had been hidden in darkness for thousands of years. 
John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Remember, as fast as light can travel, when it gets wherever it's going, the darkness is already there. 1 Thessalonians 5, but ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. When you pray, you are turning the light on. Praise God. You are flipping a switch, an eternal switch. When I was a kid, we lived in a, in a two-story family flat, downtown St. Louis. I remember uh, one night we got up, turned the light on in the kitchen, and, and water bugs had come up out of the drain, and they went everywhere. I, I was a little kid. I can remember mom and dad doing this all over the kitchen floor. When you turn the light on in prayer, devils will flee. We're going to talk about it next week, resisting the devil. If you resist him, he will flee, but you need to know how to do it. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Y'all ready for this? Are you really ready for this? I don't know. Because when the devil begins to get exposed, he gets mad, he gets angry. But here's the trick. You need to have a prayer life, faith and authority with God, that whenever you're attacked by a devil... He gets the worst end of the bargain. All right. He needs to learn something. You come against me, I'm going to beat you down. I'm going to bind you, and you're going to go back humiliated. You're going to have to report to your commander and general, I failed again. I have no power with that brother, with that man, with that woman. And when you get that going, you won't have to worry anymore. They won't bother you in the middle of the night. They won't dare walk in your house. They won't come against your children because they'll know that mother has power. That dad knows how to pray. That brother 